and welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at Mike Trap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. Now, this week, my guest is Bill Weiberg, co-founder, general partner, and spiritual guide of G20 Ventures. Bill's an accomplished executive and a 14-year venture investor, passionate about technical innovation and helping entrepreneurs win. Uh, Bill has extensive operating experience, culminating in his role as the president of Lucent Technologies' $5 billion cellular and PCS wireless networks division. Prior to that, he held senior product management and marketing roles at AT&T, Bell Labs, and Lucent, uh, and made the change to venture investing in, in 2000. Uh, Bill serves on the boards today of G20 portfolio companies, including Modic and Simplify. Uh, he remains a GP at Advanced Technology Ventures and serves on the boards of Great Point Energy, uh, Reef Technology, Silicor Materials, Oasis Water, and Aqualon Energy. He earned his MBA from Columbia University, an MS from Stanford, and a BS from Cornell. He and his wife and two daughters, one of whom is also a recent graduate of Cornell, uh, all live in Wellesley. Uh, in our second segment today, I'll ask Bill about the death of IT, specifically exploring the implications of the rapid commoditization of the compute, network, and storage technologies that businesses large and small have used to differentiate themselves from competition for the last 60 years. And we'll explore what the coming generation of enterprise tech looks like from the centrality of enterprise data, AI, machine learning, and the evolution of voice technology from novelty to business value driver. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation. Definitely stick around for that one. Uh, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. And here now is my conversation uh, with Bill Weiberg. How are you? I'm doing just great. Thanks. Thanks for schlepping out to Waltham here on this um, glorious December day. We like to start these off, as you know, just by helping people kind of get to know a little bit of your background and where you're from. Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in uh, Seattle, Washington, but lived there for a very short time and spent most of my uh, childhood just outside of New Haven, Connecticut, in a town of uh, the town of Hamden. Why did your parents move? So my father is a uh, or was a college professor and. He um, had taken a, a professorship at Yale University as a chemist, um, and so we moved there in 1962, a long time ago, and uh, he stayed at Yale really throughout his career after that. I grew up in Hamden and then uh, went to school in Ithaca, New York at Cornell, something I know we share. Go Big Red! Yes, exactly. Yep. And then uh, you spent a, a year out at Stanford um, for graduate school, but other than that, have um, have been in the Northeast really all my life. Uh, siblings? I do. I have. I'm the youngest of three. I have an older sister, 
um, and an older brother, and I, I'm bringing up the rear among the were, family. Were, were you? What was the family dynamic? Were you doted upon as the baby, or no? What? I was. Uh, I, I would say largely ignored. I think by the time uh, the third comes along, especially <laughs> good, in that good generation, preparation for fatherhood. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, my sister, I think my parents were pretty uh, conservative and on top of things. My brother um, broke many barriers, and by the time I came along, it was uh, anything goes. Right, right. You uh, mentioned uh, the trip to Cornell. Did you have the expectation that you would, you would, you know, go to a fancy college and do all that? And, and your family, I guess your your father was an educator, so yeah. You uh, know, I, I have been around the kind of an academic environment all my life. I uh, went through high school and was um, pretty good at math. And so when I was thinking about where to go to college, I, I did have thought I would say I was job-oriented probably even coming out of high school. And I was thinking, well, you know, I'm going to go through college. I want to have a job when I come out. Engineering seems like uh, kind of the right thing to do. And I was good at math, and Cornell had a great engineering program. So for me, it was a natural and pretty easy choice to go to Cornell. When I got up there, I realized, you know, I didn't know a lot about different fields of engineering. And I came to understand that I probably was never going to be a, what I'd say a real engineer um, in electrical engineering or civil engineering or mechanical, mechanical engineering, that my interests were, um, were broader. I think I'm better broad than I am going exceptionally deep in any particular topic. And so I fell into a field I had never heard of when I started school um, called the operations research, which is really about mathematical modeling and applying it to real world problems. And that, that satisfied me. I'm a, I would say by nature a problem solver. And, uh, and so using uh, math as a way of doing something that was not so abstract, but much more applied and pragmatic that, uh, that appealed to me. It was fantastic. It was a great experience. I, I enjoyed it socially. Um, in a significant way, and uh, many of my best friends um, to this day are people that I met at school and uh, have stayed pretty close to. So um, from a social experience, it was great. Academically, it, um, it did give me the, the, the programs are so broad and diverse at Cornell, and the ability to take courses from everything from wines to meteorology to engineering classes to art history was... Uh, was really appealing to me. You you remember the inscription on the Cornell insignia? It is, I would found an institution where any person can find instruction in, in any study, often added to by Cornellians with the phrase, as long as they're willing to walk far enough uphill in bad weather. Oh, see, that's well said. And I have um, heard that, but never would have been able to state it so beautifully. <laughs> so good good work. So you, you graduate with this sort of very specialized but applied and very practical engineering degree what did you was there something that people with that always do or did you have to think about what you wanted to do after school what was yeah that? at that time um, certainly there were opportunities in consulting consulting firms as they still do today were big hirers at the time um, and there were corporate jobs in a range of disciplines um, but I ended up uh, being very attracted to one opportunity and that was at Bell Laboratories the old R&D part of what was still AT&T as one um, non-divested monolith at sure. the time in 1981 when I graduated. And uh, so I joined Bell Labs, had a very unique program, which is really what was attracted, attractive to me, and that is uh, that they would have you work for a summer, and then they would send you anywhere you wanted to go for graduate school, and they would uh, pay your 
uh, all your expenses and two-thirds your salary when you were there. And as a kid that was washing pots to get through um, um, for spending money at Cornell, this was very appealing sure. to go to California, go to Stanford, and uh, have a little pocket change along the way. So I did that and, uh, and studied engineering economics at Stanford for um, the year following graduation at Cornell. You're the second um, How Hard Can It Be podcast uh, participant who is a Bell Labs person. And it's hard to um, explain to, you know, younger entrepreneurs what a storied place that was. I mean, you know, the transistor was invented there and like, you know, transformative, um, you know, R&D and, and, and very much comfortable with the R part of R&D. Very much so. In um, fact, the Big Bang Theory, you may know, was uh, validated by... Um, scientists at, uh, at Bell Labs as well. So they, uh, you know, the laser, it goes on and on, cellular telephony. Um, and at that time, it was, I've got to say, it was the place to be in yeah. uh, 1981. We, we don't have that anymore, like it seems. Uh, you know, as someone that's a veteran of that, I asked Ram a similar question, but have we lost something in our ability to do that? Or, you know, it, it, for a while, the National Science Foundation kind of stepped into that role, but now it feels like even the funding for those kinds of activities have been cut back, right? As an investor, you know, who fills that gap? Who, who does the R today? Do you feel like there's a problem there or we're okay? Well, I think we definitely have lost something. You know, institutions like Bell Labs had the resources to be able to do real blue sky research and at some point figure out how to bridge that toward product. They weren't always great at it, to be honest, but, yeah. uh, but they got things far enough along that they were taken either by themselves or others. And I think it's driven a lot of innovation. If you go back decades, you'd, you'd see that. I, you know, corporate R&D centers certainly don't do that kind of work to that extent today. And it is more um, like NSF funding, things along those lines at universities. But the thing is, it does leave a gap between um, that kind of that level of research innovation and commercialization. And while Bell Labs may have not been the best at getting it all the way to the end game, it got it far enough along that somebody picked it up and then was able to take it forward. And I think there is, uh, that's lacking. The, the jump from basic research at an academic institution to having a, a product that is fulfilling a need is a, is a pretty big jump. Yeah. You know, it's interesting here in Boston, you know, I think MIT does that as well as just about anybody partly because there's such an ecosystem of venture money and, and focus on entrepreneurship in and around kind of Kendall Square. And, you know, so maybe there's, there's, there's hope for it there. It certainly seems like we're focused on that here in Boston. In fact, I, I think that's right, Mike. And the venture community, in a sense, maybe they bridge the gap to an extent in universities, you know, starting with MIT and Stanford, but now permeating across the great uh, research universities. All are interested in entrepreneurship in a way that they weren't so if you went back to 1981, um, you know, Harvard didn't have the innovation lab. In fact, right. they didn't have it in 1991, and you could go, you know, go forward. So there's been a, a real change in the attitude of research faculty at academic institutions and more of a push toward entre uh, entrepreneurial pursuits. And I'd like to think the venture community has helped aid that, and maybe that is part of the answer. Right. It's almost like in your dad's era, you know, academics, quote-unquote, didn't want to be soiled by commerce. Absolutely. Um, but, that but, is certainly true. But now it's seen, seen you know, as a, um, uh, it, it almost validates, you know, the quality of whatever your output is that it's somehow commercialized. Yeah, especially for the engineering side of, sure. you know, for the pure sciences, there's still a purity to it. But, yeah. uh, but there is certainly a push toward um, practical 
um, application and real impact on people's lives. I think that is appealing to anybody. Got it. So coming back to your story, uh, yeah. where did you ask to be posted after your year at Stanford? Well, I went back to uh, New Jersey where I live for, in the end... They would uh, put you anywhere yeah. and you chose New no, Jersey? No, no, no. So you could go to school anywhere, but <laughs> oh. the home base okay. for uh, Bell Labs was in New Jersey. Murray Hill was the basic research facility and I was down in Homedell, New Jersey. Um, and I worked my way through engineering management uh, jobs through the early part of the 80s. And I came to realize that there was a moment where I had, I had a group. I was a technical supervisor. That was the first management job at Bell Labs. And I was doing very well. But I looked at my boss's job and my boss's boss's job, and I, I realized like I, I didn't want those jobs. And it was time for me to start to think about uh, what would I do differently. And it led me over time to uh, decide to go back and get an MBA. And I was fortunate enough that um, AT&T still was supporting um, continuing education in a, in a big way. I ended up going to Columbia and getting an MBA through their executive MBA program um, between 1990 and 1992. And I used that as a way to reposition or almost rebrand myself from being, I was seen as an engineer and a great, uh, hopefully a great technical manager of groups and such in the Bell Labs environment, but I wanted to migrate away from that and, and own a business. Um, even within the behemoth that was AT&T, there was opportunity to do that. Um, so the, going to business school was largely an opportunity for me to rebrand myself. It's funny, it's very, very similar to my own story. And, um, and several people have, have, have sort of expressed a similar, um, you know, strategy that, that if you, you rise to a certain level in your area of chosen functional expertise and, and you know, the learning curve kind of flattens out and you look ahead and, and this idea of, of trying to leverage that into a broader perspective on business and right. understand the levers of how things get done, um, you know, I think that's a common experience. You know, I'm, I'm sure people ask you, as they do me, very often whether it's worth it. Is there standard advice that you can give people about the value of that MBA, or, or is it vary by individual? So I'm going to answer, but then I'm going to ask you the same question. So I'll preview preview my question back at you. Um, for me, I think it was uh, very effective, and it really, even within one corporate entity, it allowed me to do something completely different. And so for me, what happened was, uh, as I got started on this. At the same time, I was asked by the company to serve on a strategic planning task force um, that was reporting to the board of directors of AT&T about kind of their strategy for the next 10 years. And there were a number of things going on in the telecom market that made it an opportune time for them to step back and think about what are we doing. Um, and so I, uh, I was very reluctant to do it. I had been around a corporate environment long enough to know that corporate strategy work is um, often mind-numbing. Um, and ineffective. You end up working for a long time, putting together a beautiful presentation, put it in a binder, and then nobody really does anything yeah. with it. And so I was able, though, to strike a deal that turned out to be uh, a good one for me, which was I said, I'm willing to do it if when I finish it, I can have a P&L job. And I didn't say in what area or anything of that sort, um, but uh, I wanted to be a product manager. I wanted to own P&L for something when I finished up the strategic planning work, which was going to coincide with me finishing um, my MBA at Columbia. And, uh, and they were um, true to their side of the bargain. I did the strategic planning work, um, finished my degree, 
and then it was time to get a um, you know a, a PNL job. And this is where I was just unbelievably lucky. And I, you know, there you need moments of luck in anybody's career. I believe, like a lot of people are smart and work hard and do all those things, but you need a few moments of good fortune as well. And this was one of them for me. That the job that happened to be forming was around what was going to be our new wireless or cellular business at AT and T. And up to that time, despite the fact that uh, Bell Labs had invented cellular telephony. They had a small business um, run by people in Bell Labs, and they weren't business guys at all. Um, and it was small in the hundreds of millions of dollars, but for AT&T, that was quite small. And they decided to take five Mom people to be... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so they took uh, five people to be product managers. I was one of the five, and they put it under a guy that used to run uh, the Western region sales for AT&T, who turned out to be a great mentor for me. And we were than the, um, the business of uh, wireless for AT&T and then what became Lucent Technologies in the mid-90s as AT&T spun off the um, equipment part of the business. There is no better time to have been in the wireless business than in the United States than uh, 1990 to 2000. So there was an enormous tailwind of uh, business as if you can remember that time, my first phone was what they call a bag phone. I thought it was really cool. It was the size of a big photo bag, and you carried yeah. it around. My, and my dad I had thought, one. Yeah, I just yeah. thought it was like the coolest thing that I had one of these yeah. things. But, um, you know, by the end of the 90s, of course, uh, everybody had a phone in their pocket, and, um, and that gave me incredible opportunity to grow um, through those years. But I'm going to back up, back to your uh, question on was getting an MBA important. For me, it did put me in the position combined with good fortune to set me on a different path. How about for you? Yeah, I would say the same. I, I think, you know, I had, I had my area of specialized expertise was more in, in the advertising space and was really about brand strategy and, and um, you know, had grown up in some of the best agencies in the world and had a wonderful experience. And, but it just felt narrow. At some point, it was constraining. And I realized that uh, the businesses that brands were being applied toward uh, the the real driver, right? The brand is sort of the tail on the dog in some ways. Mm-hmm. That if you look at, you know, as I as I came to understand my clients' businesses and all the other factors that went into the distribution of, you know, let, let's just take something like Coke, which is an example everybody's familiar with. Um, there was so much more to that um, than uh, the work that we were doing. Um, you could argue that the the most significant aspect of Coke is is the is the brand, right? Right. So so it was very satisfying in that respect. But I, I just I felt. Um, you know, I would almost use the word ignorant. Like it bothered me that that all the accounting stuff and the management stuff was a bit of a black box. Right. And it just made me feel sort of narrow. And I felt like, um, you know, that 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 I'm a curious person, and that that irritates me. Mm-hmm. And and like you, you know, I I knew that over the long run, my my plan was to build you know my own company. At the time, I thought it would be an agency. Um, not understanding the the effect of a multiplier on on, on personal wealth creation. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. But um, but yeah, it was all, I think a lot of similar things. But it was a desire to broaden myself and my understanding of the way at least the business world worked, 
and um, you know, it, it, it certainly had that effect on me. Yeah, I think it's good grounding for so many aspects of what people do on a, on a go-forward basis. You really, you, you sort of hit the mother load there in terms of the timing. This was a time of great deregulation, right? Yeah, so that was, in fact, that part of divestiture came in the 80s and the Arbox went their way. But the thing that happened in the 90s that was kind of critical was uh, Lucent Technologies was spun out as a separate company that was then able to sell effectively equipment to all the carriers around the world. And AT&T was one of our customers, but so were all the other uh, service providers, both in the U.S. and throughout the rest of uh, the world. And and we had a great technology position, and I uh, had the opportunity to become VP of Marketing and then VP of Marketing and Product Management, and then eventually president of the wireless division of Lucent that uh, had our old analog amps um, wireless networks, and then CDMA and TDMA, which was this transition to digital um, cellular networks. And that was, again, a great moment in time to be involved. That was happening just as Lucent was spun out. And uh, I took over that job in 1997. And by the time I finished in the end of 2000, it was a $5.5 billion business. It uh, spun off a, a lot of operating income. And it was a great business. And I would say, you know, it's hard to think of things being entrepreneurial within AT&T of, of any company, of any company of that size, but because we were growing so quickly and we were making our numbers and we were um, very visible to outside investors, um, we had a lot of leeway to do what we needed to do um, to succeed. And I really felt like I had great autonomy. I had a fantastic team during that time and uh, had a great time building that business. You know, what do you take away from the experience of running a business at that scale? Well, I'll say many of the things are similar problems and challenges faced by small companies that just maybe are amplified as companies get bigger. So the first thing is, it is truly all about people. We all say that all the time. But if you're scaling a business, by the time I left, I had about uh, 5,000 people in my business who were scattered around the world. And uh, I had probably eight people directly reporting to me. I would say seven of the eight absolutely were better at their functional job than I ever could have been. The eighth was the product manager, and she and I would debate. You know, we, right. She was actually fantastic. Um, but that's the one area that I, you know, that I felt like I had some real expertise in. Sure. But, but assembling that right team in a team that, that I could truly delegate to, that I could trust was going to be able to build their team and then scale. Um, in the end, the people you're touching day to day is a relatively small number. And then beyond that, it's about you know vision and strategy. It's about picking people that can, with you, execute on that. It's about listening really well, because people have a lot more information than you do. And then having alignment across the team, having a group of people that are all going in the same direction, finally being able across the broad group to communicate effectively to keep people engaged. So those are all like big company things, but I'll tell you, they play um, to a company of 10 people when you're making your first critical hires of the senior team. I'd say I, I learned a lot about how to keep people focused on a common goal rather than on in believing that that's going to be the best thing for them. Totally agree. And, I, and I've seen that skill in every effective leader I've ever known. I think people who are strong leaders inside any organization of any size 
are able to make that connection for an individual person between their individual aspiration and the objectives of the team as a whole. Right. Know? I think that's that's the goal. And some people are are just really good at that. And you try to pick people within your team. That has to it has to permeate all the way through a large organization. But it starts, you know, with uh, being very conscious about that and the way you set objectives and and try to align a team. All right. So how do you make the transition from you're a big mucky muck at this huge global company and and uh, uh, help us understand how you go from there to being a principal at ATV. I think my wife would say it was a midlife crisis of sorts. I was 40 <laughs> years old. I, uh, I um, was thinking a little bit really about the next 10 years of my career and forced to, um, in some ways, by conversations with uh, the people I worked for, the, the chairman and CEO of, of Lucent. And we were talking about kind of my, my future there and and we were talking about a 10-year time frame. And at the time, this is something you're very conscious of. In fact, you're very conscious of in your job at Actifio. Um, I had made 18 quarters in a row. So, you know, you measured. It's, it's a very quantitative and measurable process. And my autonomy and my great quality of life at Lucent was uh, solely dependent on my making and beating my numbers there every quarter. It's so a simple equation. So I had done that uh, for 18 quarters. And... For a variety of reasons, partly that I was just I just turned 40, um, and I was having these conversations with people at, at Lucent, and we were talking about 10-year time frames, and I started thinking about 40 quarters. And I thought, am I ready to make 40 more quarters just over the next 10 years? Um, and to be honest, that was a big question for me. It was, it was a little bit daunting. And the second thing is I got back to the... Um, question of what what am I trying to accomplish and if I had ultimate success over that time frame I could be potentially the CEO of a big public company and is that something that I would really love to do and the honest answer for me was no not really because to do that you have to love I'm gonna say the power and the prestige that goes with it because there's an enormous cost to being the CEO of a large public company. And those aren't the things that drive me. And so it, it had me open to, yeah, what should I do? Um, I had no big plans to make a change, but I would get calls at that time. This was around end of, no, mid-2000. Mid um, I'd get a lot of calls about running smaller companies. Um, there's startups, you know, the venture world was sure. in full swing around telecom. And uh, a recruiter that I knew called me and had some job in mind, and I was not interested. I could tell you exactly where I was at the time because it turned out to be an important moment in my life, I guess. But uh, at the end of the conversation, he said, is there anything that would cause you to leave your job? And I said, honestly, you know, I, I love what I'm doing. But the one thing, when I was at Stanford in 1982, I got an early view of the venture capital business, and it was in its early kind of formative stages. And I said, that's something I always thought for the last 18 years. If I was going to do something different, maybe it would be that. And uh, he said, hey, lo and behold, there, there's an opportunity that uh, if for a partner position at a firm on the East Coast, and on and on, and one thing led to another, and I really started thinking about it. So that's like part one of this. The second part has to do with my father. So my father retired from Yale 
when he was 70 years old. And I went to, there's a big retirement dinner in New Haven for him, and it was a great event. And we were driving back to their house in Hamden. Um, afterwards, when we were in the car, and I asked my father very sincerely, I said, so, Dad, you're, you're retired now. What are you going to do on Monday? And he looked at me kind of puzzled. And I said, I said no, really, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm, I'm going to go into the office. And I said, you're kidding me. I said, they're not paying you anymore, right? And he said, no, but it's what I love to do. And um, my father is now 89. He's still publishing um, in scientific journals, uh, you know, new work in chemistry. And it's because he truly loved what he did. And I went home after that and thought a little bit about that. Like if I, as much as I claimed and did love my job at Lucent, if they told me, hey, as of Monday, you're a volunteer, was I rushing to work? And the answer was, no, you know, I was, it was certainly a fulfilling career, but it was a job. And I thought, was, all this stuff was swirling in my head, and I thought, is there anything that would uh, cause me to, like, just keep doing what I'm doing if I was getting paid or not? And I thought about venture capital and the opportunity to work with um, teams at the early days of, of their ideas, and something I had an opportunity to do much more hands-on earlier in my career that's what led me to do this. What is it about that job? What do you love about the job of, you know, investing in companies and helping entrepreneurs, you know, realize their vision? What, what is it? You strike me as you, you tell your story as a very practical person. That's true. Um, and and um, so much of, of the venture space is, is sort of, you know, there's a lot of egos and a lot of big ideas and a lot of, you know, what is it about it for you that's the, the most fun part of the job? So um, we share something, Mike, before you said you're a curious person. I am too. So I'm a person that will get lost. When I was a kid, I'd get lost in like an encyclopedia. Like I'd open to look for something that get me thinking about something else. And two hours later, I was like lost in, yeah. in Never Never Land. Familiar with and that. You can, right. I, I bet we share that. And of course, you know, now you can do that um, times uh, 10 on, on the internet. But the ability to be every day exposed to new ideas with people that are so passionate about that idea is exciting. It would, I think it would be exciting to anybody. It's certainly very exciting to me. Um, the second part is that, you know, it's the pace of progress. So I'm, I am a pragmatic, kind of practically oriented person. I grew up building things. My father was always building things. He had, you know, the wood shop in our garage. We were, you know, if we were, if we were going to do something, we, were, we had a dark room in our basement. We would just build stuff. And so being with teams that are um, innovating, but then moving at a speed that is remarkable, yeah, it's just, it's exciting. So, you know, what's not to love? It's interesting. You know, I, I think there are definitely people who who take comfort in being around people that are like them, wired the same way, and we kind of cluster into our tribes of similar, you mm -hmm. know. And then there are people that, that, that really enjoy putting themselves in environments where they're exposed to different things and, and playing that role. And uh, that aspect of it is something that, that I enjoy as well. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. And it's, you know, if, you, if I step back and think why Bob Howard and I are, I think, great partners working together is we come out of really different backgrounds. So um, I know you've done one of these with him in the past. People that have heard it know that Bob um, it came out into a pure um, brand management marketing yeah. role. That was kind of his first formative job. 
and he carries that marketing orientation forward. That's kind of where he starts. And I start at kind of a, hey, what do you have to build? How are you going to build it perspective? Is it feasible to do so? Is there an urgent need for what you're building? So I take a real product focus because that's my background. Sure. So Bob and I over you know 13 years have found that we come at things really pretty differently when we get started, but we're really complementary in that approach. And so we ask different questions at the beginning, but over the years we've worked together, I can't think of a situation where in the end we didn't come to a singular conclusion. And we did that by um, being open enough to hear each other, I think, well, and have a lot of trust in each other and value the difference in perspective. And we both, uh, I know I learn um, every day, and I, I hope he would say the same thing. talk about in our second segment today is is a really an idea that uh, that came up as we were preparing for this and the idea is the end of IT. Well, that is um, a provocative topic <laughs> in talking to a bunch of people pursuing careers in IT. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it feels like we're sort of breaking with the past, right? Um, you know, in my life at Actifio, you know, I talk to CIOs all the time, and, and what they say almost to a person is, we're in the blank business. We don't want to be in the IT business anymore, mm-hmm. right? Everybody just wants to rent the stuff they have, and it's in the cloud, and it's somebody else's problem. And so there's that dynamic. But there's also, I think, the sense that that the last generation of technologies, many of which originated at places like Bell Labs, if not at Bell Labs itself, have kind of run its course. And we're on to, you know, big data and AI and machine learning and and so, Certainly, I'd say I would just say, Mike, if, if not run their course, they're not the differentiators anymore. Right. They are the table, spa- table stakes. They've been commoditized in a way that the plumbing in many areas, not in all areas, but in many areas, the, plum- the plumbing is there. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? Right. You know, when I was at business school, I graduated in 94, not long after you. And, and we used to talk about information technology as a source of sustainable competitive advantage. That back in the 90s, you could build up an IT infrastructure that became a differentiated capability that offered you something that the competitors didn't have. And now I think that's less and less true, mm-hmm. that the vast majority of IT spend is just commodity stuff that everybody needs to have. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is next? How do companies think about where they need to leverage technology in order to, to drive what they really care about at the end of the day, which is differentiated capability and competitive advantage? Yeah, I think the um, what the commoditization of of storage and um, infrastructure has done is allowed people first to collect vast amounts of data. So let's just start there. And um, you know, any enterprise software company is looking at the data set that they've aggregated and trying to figure out how they're going to derive advantage and sustainable advantage out of that. And in fact, if you think about it, maybe it is the area of sustainable advantage because as you grow to scale, your your data set is getting bigger and the person coming in behind you um, is always a half step behind. So if you're the first mover in aggregating a meaningful data set that drives customer value in some way, if you're the first one to do it, you... It's hard for somebody to catch up if you can build the, um, the sustainable uh, moat around your business. So I think it's probably in data. And of course, you know, all the buzzwords that go around um, with that around machine learning and AI, 
which are, you know, mechanisms for deriving value in the end out of these data sets. But you can look at almost any part of both consumer and enterprise-oriented businesses, and there are very few that aren't thinking about, okay, now I know this about my customer, or I know this about my, um, my market. How is it that I can use that to um, bring added value to my customers as time goes on? You know, there's so much, you know, machine learning and AI, it's become almost a, a, a cliche, right? And it's, Absolutely. it's, it's the sun-dried tomato of 2016, right? <laughs> right. right. Um, I, I had not thought of it that way, but yes, uh, but yeah. perhaps. Um, and, um, you know, another, another thing we've discussed in the past is this idea that, that the purpose of, of machine learning is to, you know, there's, there's just so much information out there. And the ability to, dis, to uh, distill actionable insight mm -hmm. from the massive quantities of information that we're all wrestling with inside and outside of companies uh, and to almost to, to, to make data actionable for human beings mm -hmm. um, uh, is that the primary value of AI in this next wave, or, or is there something else? Or how do you think about where, you know, what kinds of opportunities will be created by this, the emergent generation of AI? There are really two parts to that, Mike. One is the ability to um, complement a human decision maker. So bringing more data to an individual to give them the ability to make better decisions. And certainly... Um, that's one, one branch of the tree. And the other is getting toward more full stream automation. Um, and you see this in, for example, in the, the many areas where bots are being developed today. And the goal is for at least a set of tasks to be able to allow the bot to take care of the full interaction and offload people of things that are maybe routine and mundane or things that there is a level of precision that can be delivered by um, looking at past behavior and past data sets and drive um, behavior going forward. But I, I think there's both the fully automated and then there's the um, augmentation of the, uh, the human. Now, do you see a linear relationship between those two things? I mean, are we going to go through a period where it's really um, harvesting AI and machine learning to augment human capability. Will the interface be human for the foreseeable future, or or are these do these things exist in a kind of nonlinear relationship? Well, I think there's an enabling technology that will make it um, maybe make it a little more nonlinear, and that's uh, the ever-growing presence of a, really a viable speech interface. So right. if you think about how we interact with machines today. Um, more and more, I mean, you know, all of us use different variations of uh, speech engine to interact Siri with technology. Siri and Alexa and OK and the, Google. And yes, the, all these things. Yeah. And they're imperfect today. And so we use that, but then we modify. You know, if I'm sending a long text to my daughter, I almost always end up speaking it. But then I look at what it's uh, written, and then I go back. And I, it still is more efficient than me typing with my thumbs, which I'm not greatly skilled at. But, um, but it isn't yet perfect in a way that you could fully automate in interaction. But if you want to think about things that would be nonlinear, if uh, speech uh, recognition and processing and understanding the meaning of what I'm saying as opposed to simply the words was perfect, the interaction um, in many things could be fully automated in a way that would be, um, would be enabling. But we're not there yet. So today it's a... You know, it's a it's an add-on, it's an augmentation, but it's not a replacement. 
over time, you can see how, in particular, the speech uh, processing technology um, would be enabling. And it's happening quickly. If I think of how good that is today compared to five years ago, I'd say, hey, it's fantastic. But um, five years from now, will it be, will we continue up a steep curve? I think the answer is probably yes. Netflix is, a, is a, in addition to being an Actifio customer, a fascinating case study in, in many respects. And, and one of the things that I find interesting about Netflix is that, that their, their mailing CDs business, uh, which was a business they needed to break with to move to a streaming business, did provide the foundation for the business that followed, right? Mm-hmm. If they hadn't been in the CD mailing business, they probably would have missed the streaming. It certainly gave them a leg up in terms of migrating to a fundamentally new generation of technologies in, in, uh, in streaming and, that, and then content and everything else kind of followed from that. Does a business that's founded on the augmented model, is it creating the foundation for a larger business or do you feel like just the augmented model is, is what you're investing in? Yeah, it's a good question, Mike, and I think it's very situational. Uh, my guess is things fall more in the former category, that people are not building augmentation as the final state, but as a step in a transition toward um, being able to drive greater value through technology enablement for, for a customer. So take an example of a company that has a real customer service component. And today, um, you know, there's a customer service rep, there's the, all the automated scripts that we hate, but there's an opportunity to start to bring in something that's much more a natural um, language processing approach, and companies are certainly going down that path. But it starts with the ability to understand what interactions are important and understand the semantics of those interactions and be able to, in fact, train a machine learning algorithm as to how... Um, how interactions are um, are resolved favorably, right. and that only happens over time. So you start, I think, with augmentation, but it gets back to building data sets. If you understand the nature of inter- interaction in a way that nobody else does, I think with even the technologies that are available today, you would be able to um, begin to hone a more automated interaction that would be very satisfying. Sure. And... Uh, you know, as we interact with um, customer service of many different kinds today, some experiences are terrible and some are getting better. Right. And I think it is through technology enablement and augmentation now. But if you look 10 years down the road, I think many of those things could just be better um, and without human interaction, the, um, a better understanding of what I'm really asking in answering those questions or leading me through a script that gets to the the fine point of what I need to know. And that's where machine learning, I think, is, uh, you know, it's a great application for it, and um, and I expect that will be evolutionary, not uh, not a step change. Right. That that training data set is invaluable, right? It's back to building uh-huh. the moat by having the most data. Yeah. You know, whoever does that first is, is going to have an understanding of their customer or their customer in this situation that nobody else does, or at least they don't have as good a one. And the one that's furthest ahead is always going to get better because they're going to build, there'll be more interaction. And the more interaction you have, the the better it will get. And I think that is the, the nature of sustainable advantage in a world where the computing and storage is in the cloud and anybody can get that and uh, get it efficiently. So the question is, what are you doing with it? And you know, my guess is largely will be around data. 
you know, your, your, your earlier observation um, about the, the intersection of, of uh, AI and voice technology, I think, is really right on target. And um, this is almost an unfair question, but I'll ask it anyway. When does voice become the primary means with which we interact with, you know, information technology? I think it's going to be really vertical by vertical. So I, I think it would be very hard to answer that, you know, generally speaking, we'll be interacting with machines via voice in any time frame. I don't know what year that will be. Right, right. But take the, maybe a way to think about it is where are the needs most urgent? So I'd say the first time I really started using voice as an interaction mechanism in a significant way was in my car. Right. And the interface was terrible. Like the first, the first car I had that had a Bluetooth voice scripting for making calls, if you didn't know the script, you got nothing done. Right. In fact, it was probably an impediment, not an enhancement. Right. But over time, um, I have a navigation system in my car because my car is a 2008 car. So it has an in-dashboard navigation system. I find that I do most of my navigation on my phone because the spoken interface is so much better. When I say, give me directions to Actifio, you know, I'm going to get directions to Actifio with no, you know, nothing beyond that. So I would say for navigation today, it's today. The, right. What is my primary you know, interaction with navigation is by voice because I'm doing it at a time that I have urgent need and I'm willing to put up with it not being perfect because my need is pretty urgent right. because I'm driving. But if you look at other places where your natural interaction doesn't demand that, um, first, there's probably more complexity. It's not as, as narrow a scripting. And second, the, you know, I'm less tolerant of issues right. in other areas. So you know, I think it will depend by sector. In the end, there's a place for humans in all this. And I guess that's the, the, the thing that occurs to me is uh, machine learning and scripting and voice automation, all that is going to work for things that are repeatable tasks that don't need a level of judgment and maybe emotional um, aptitude that only a person can bring to it. So, you know, you, when we talk, we can gauge whether you understand what I'm saying or not because we're talking tone of voice, um, the seeing a person directly. Um, those things, you know, we're, we're ages away, I think, from having um, kind of emotional intelligence in, uh, in a machine environment. And, and I'm thankful for that per personally. I, I would prefer to keep talking to you instead of to your bot. Yeah, are you, have you, are you a Westworld fan? Do you watch that show? Uh, you know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the original movie. Yule but Brenner. no, I have, um, I have not seen the series, so I have not seen it. Uh, it's, it's fascinating, um, and, and partly because it's a meditation on when does, when does a machine cross the threshold of, you know, sentience, you yes. know, yeah, self-awareness yeah, yeah. right. and um, consciousness. Right. Um, and, um, you know, that, that is uh, fraught with a lot of ethical issues, right, which, which right. are a little further down the road. Right. But, um, but it, you know, it, does, it, does, it highlights exactly what, what you say, which is that there is this binary difference between, between a, you know, human being who can process that and communicate and a, uh, you know, a machine that, that, that can't. And let's hope that uh, is maintained for some time so we can continue to talk. 
let us hope for that indeed. Uh, thank you for spending some time listening to us talk today. Um, How Hard Can It Be is once again sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. Now, How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio is radically simple. Um, hey, if you think of it today, please uh, give us a subscribe. You can grab us uh, on SoundCloud or on iTunes or pretty much wherever you uh, listen to podcasts. Um, appreciate uh, your ratings on iTunes as well. And uh, please help us spread the word. Thanks for sticking around, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.